Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 17, Andrea Roth, Machine Testimony. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Andrea Roth. Andrea is an assistant professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley. Andrea teaches evidence, criminal law, and a course on forensic science. Her scholarship focuses on how criminal procedure and evidence law should evolve to handle modern science-based prosecutions, focusing on issues related to forensic science and durability. The topic of today's podcast is Andrea's article, simply but appropriately entitled Machine Testimony, which is forthcoming in the Yale Law Journal. In the article, Andrea tackles the problem of evidence generated by machines. Machine-generated evidence, of course, pervades modern litigation. Forensic evidence, for example, is often generated or at least augmented by machines and plays a critical role in many criminal cases. As Andrea argues, however, While the evidentiary rules focus a lot of attention on evidence produced by people, namely testimony, they do not scrutinize machine evidence with similar rigor. Andrea explores the dangers of this blind spot in the proof process, and while acknowledging the obvious fact that we cannot cross-examine a machine, she proposes some sensible alternative mechanisms to help ensure reliability of machine evidence. Andrea, it's a pleasure to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Machines are the source of many kinds of evidence these days, and so your article begins with a taxonomy. How do you divide up the world of machine evidence? In the article, I suggest that it's helpful to think of machines for different categories. One is machines as tools where a human witness or typically a human expert is using the tool to facilitate some type of testing, often scientific testing, but the machine itself is not a conveyor of information. It's simply a tool used to do something. There are also machines as conduits. If I write an email to you saying I'm really excited about going on the podcast and it's being offered to show that I'm really excited, the email program is simply a conveyor of my own assertion. It's not being used itself as a witness. There's also machines as silent witnesses, thinking most obviously about photographs. And some people colloquially call photographs silent witnesses as if they convey information. And they do in some sense, but I think it's helpful conceptually to think of them as a separate category akin to the human eye. And then the fourth category that I suggest is machines that are declarants, which I know is a loaded term of art that we use for human witnesses often, but by declarant I mean a machine that is actually explicitly conveying information through symbolic output that is readable by humans and jurors and human experts and such. So those are the categories. Why is the taxonomy important? What does the taxonomy try to achieve from an evidentiary perspective? I ask because I felt as though a lot of evidence fits into multiple groups. 
For example, a license plate reader can be a silent witness or a declarant. And I guess my question is, does it really matter whether we get the specific classification right? Ultimately, the labels aren't intended as some attempt to put down in stone what we should be calling certain machines. I should say, I started with the idea that machine evidence is not as scrutinized as it should be. In general, machines in generating legal proof. But the extent to which the use of machines can lead to inferential error depends on the role that the machine is playing and the things that can go right or wrong with it. So a photograph can be misleading or inaccurate in conveying information in ways that simply using a laser to look at, at latent prints in a crime scene isn't going to implicate. And so it's not so much that the labels are important in and of themselves as they're important in the sense that they help shed light on the types of machines that tend to implicate certain problems. So the license plate reader as a qua photograph might have certain pathologies or potential inaccuracies, and license plate reader qua analytical software might have certain pathologies, and we would need different safeguards to deal with both. My main takeaway from the paper is that machines effectively testify in the sense that they produce evidence, yet they aren't tested in the same way as human witnesses. So let's start at the beginning, and let me ask, how is machine testimony currently treated by the system? It's largely a product of accident that we have certain safeguards created for humans that do a decent job in some ways of testing machines. And that's mostly through Fry and Daubert, the reliability-based rules of exclusion we have for scientific and technical methods used by human experts. Fry and Daubert can certainly be wielded to attempt to exclude certain results of machine processes that are used by a human expert that might be clearly unreliable as seen through validation studies. But other than Fry and Daubert and rules of authentication, we don't have a lot of safeguards. And I should also say with respect to some very simple machines that we've used for hundreds of years, like the sextant or the thermometer, we also have requirements that before we presume those readings to be correct, we require that the machines are regularly made. So safeguards exist with respect to some machines that we've had for hundreds of years, but certainly not this next wave of expert systems and robot security guards, and even the Drunkometer, which has been around since the 30s. What are the dangers that the legal system is ignoring here? You term this as black box dangers. What is it that Daubert is missing? One big thing that Daubert is missing is that it's simply a rule of admissibility. When it comes to human testimony, we have rules of exclusion in the form of the hearsay rule and Daubert Fry and competence requirements. But most of our most valuable safeguards when it comes to human testimony are generative rules, rules that generate more information for the fact finder to give them context to assess human witnesses properly. We allow impeachment with evidence of bias and prior inconsistent statements and all of this. We have corroboration requirements for certain types of witnesses, confessions, and accomplices. With black box dangers as the organizing principle, 
I'm envisioning a regime of evidence law for machines that is not just a narrow rule of exclusion, some basic reliability requirement, but impeachment, jury instructions, corroboration requirements, front-end regulatory safeguards, many of which we already have in the DUI context for reasons I can get into. I'm envisioning a regime of disclosure and impeachment requirements that are just not contemplated by Freidaubert. There's a distinction that I think I was trying to draw between Daubert and your approach. Would it be fair to say that Daubert is the inquisitorial view of the reliability check and your approach is the more adversarial view? Daubert is inquisitorial because the judge decides what is sufficiently reliable and that ensures whether or not the evidence is good and it goes to the jury and the expectation is that the jury will simply use it. Whereas your proposal is that you want to generate more evidence so that the attorneys can test it through more old-fashioned adversarial ways. I think that's helpful in my own thinking about how my approach is different from the status quo. Even Daubert itself is an adversarial hearing of competing experts. Rule 706 with court-appointed experts is a very underutilized rule. And of course, Fry is envisioning that the scientific community itself might be somehow the gatekeeper. So it's not so much that I want to transfer power from the judge to the lawyers any more than we have now, because again, impeachment of human witnesses right now is very much a lawyer-driven process. I'm focusing on the jury. I want the jury to have more information. It could be information that's just required by the judge. The lawyers will decide what to do with it. In the DUI context, we have requirements and protocols for testing. And if the police don't follow those protocols, the jury will hear about it. It's up to the lawyers, perhaps, to decide what to do with all of that. But I don't think I'm envisioning a completely different role for the jurors or judges than exists now. If anything, I would say I want the entire law of testimony to shift a little bit more from blanket rules of exclusion, like the hearsay rule, to information generative rules so that the jury itself is better positioned to make those decisions. So say more about these information generative rules. What kind of regime do you envision? Is it discovery from the civil context? Is it a more robust compulsory process clause or some kind of expansion of the compulsory process clause? What are you envisioning here? So all of the above. I focus in the paper mostly on the rules of evidence and then later on the confrontation clause but a whole paper could be written on the compulsory process clause and machine evidence too. But with respect to your first question about discovery, just to take a simple example, the civil rules of discovery with respect to human experts require a great deal of pretrial disclosure related to what the expert's going to say and the data upon which the expert relies. For a machine expert system, let's say, that's going to interpret DNA mixtures or sometime in the future, fingerprints and ballistics, we have no such pretrial discovery requirements. I'm not necessarily saying that the government has to turn over the source code of proprietary systems, although under some circumstances, perhaps something like that would be necessary. But at least a criminal defendant, one would think, or the jury, at least has to know the basic analytical assumptions underlying 
the machine's processes if they're going to be generating expert opinion. The Jenks Act is another example of disclosure requirements. Right now, in criminal cases in many jurisdictions, there's a requirement that if you're going to call a witness, you have to turn over the prior statements of those witnesses upon them testifying. We don't have those requirements for machines, or for human hearsay declarants for that matter, and there's no reason we shouldn't. It would show inconsistencies, it would better show the jury the context of, of the statements that are being admitted at trial. So with respect to other types of safeguards that I'm envisioning, you could imagine corroboration requirements that for we have the corpus delicti rule that generally requires that if the government's going to be relying on a confession, there needs to be some other additional evidence that a crime occurred because of our concerns about false confessions. Well, you could imagine perhaps requiring two machine results before somebody is convicted solely on the basis of a machine result. I'm thinking of the Oral Hillary case in particular in New York, where two different expert systems that interpret DNA mixtures came to two different results based on the same DNA evidence in front of them, which should give us pause. It's not necessarily surprising, but it should give us pause if it's the primary evidence of guilt. How does confrontation fit into this puzzle? You reference Goodwin Liu's concern that computerized information is like an ex parte affidavit. Of course, defendants are going to have a lot of difficulty confronting machines in court. How does the confrontation work in this context? Is it the same reliability checks in terms of discovery and production that you were talking about earlier, or is it different? I think it's the same and different. So I think. There is one aspect of confronting machines might be recognizing a constitutional argument for a right to meaningful impeachment, not just of machines, but of witnesses in general. And we saw that type of rhetoric in Supreme Court cases from the 1950s, and then it kind of just faded away a little bit. And I think we could rediscover the constitutional right to meaningful impeachment, which would involve a lot of the same impeachment and discovery requirements that I'm suggesting here, but recognizing a constitutional basis for them, even if a jurisdiction chose not to have certain evidence rules. Then I think there's also an aspect to confrontation related to this dignitary concern above and beyond reliability of evidence. And it's the concern that Justice Scalia voiced in Coy versus Iowa about the need to have somebody stand behind their accusation and confront you face to face. And obviously machines can't do that, or even if they did, they wouldn't recognize the moral gravity of their accusations. But it might be that we should explore some requirement that a flesh-and-blood human somehow stand behind or vouch for a machine accusation, even if there isn't otherwise a human witness there. Because right now there's no requirement that there be a human intermediary before the opinions of an expert system are presented in court, and perhaps there should be. Let me unpack your answer into the two parts. So the first part, you suggest that indeed some kind of production might be required because there should be a meaningful right of impeachment of all kinds of evidence. I'm going to reference an earlier episode of this podcast where Pam Metzger presented a thesis about how confrontation should be conceived not about cross-examination, but as a rule of production. 
her thesis there is that the prosecution should be required to produce witnesses. Seems to me that your theory here is somewhat of a kindred spirit with her article. How do we produce the machine? Would it be that you have to grant the defense access to, say, the DNA typing machine so that they can run tests? Is that the kind of production that you're looking for? That would definitely be part of it. One might say that that's more of a compulsory process argument than a confrontation argument, but access to databases has been a recurring concern. Most government databases, if a defendant says, look, I know you, the government, chose not to test this biological material, but I chose to test it, and I found a DNA profile, and I'd like to run it through your database, it's often a fight to be able to do that. Even more than the database, what about the machine itself? Yes. Access to expert systems, I would think, would be akin to access to experts, right? So Aki versus Oklahoma, the idea that you should be able to, as an indigent defendant, have money to access experts. Money to access expert systems seems to me directly analogous. And, and I should say that these expert systems that I'm claiming need more scrutiny they're also used for exoneration. So true allele in the DNA mixture context has been used to exonerate defendants. It arguably has exonerated Oral Hillary or suggested that, that he's likely not a potential contributor to this mixture. And so if we have access to that because the government chose to use true allele at first, but if not, yes, access to experts should include access to expert machines. I also agree that cross-examination and courtroom safeguards in general have been fetishized and have been overly relied upon as a testimonial safeguard in general, even with respect to human witnesses. And, and hopefully this paper adds to that discussion. I mean, David Skolansky and Aaron Murphy and others have also made this point about the over-reliance on cross-examination. Now let me take that second piece, where you suggest that you want to have a person come to court to somehow vouch for the machine. I'm a little skeptical about what that gets us. If a human comes to court and testifies or vouches for the machine, it's not that different from a hearsay witness vouching for the declarant. We're not really getting at the core of the problem. What does that human give us that's extra? Well, I think the vouching would be necessary, but not sufficient. I absolutely agree that one of the problems under the current system is that human experts are often simply a conduit for a machine assertion. And so it's, it's sort of a false consciousness to think that cross-examining this human expert gets us anything when what we really want to do is confront the machine or scrutinize the machine. And that's one of the central premises of the paper is that Humans as conduits for machines are not helpful if all we're doing is scrutinizing the human. So necessary but not sufficient. The reason I think it adds something above and beyond simply scrutinizing the machine is if we care about a human looking the defendant in the eye and saying, I know the moral consequences of this accusation. I know that it's the primary evidence against you. And I am standing behind this machine even as it sends you to the gallows, 
I suppose what we gain is that dignitary aspect of face-to-face -face accusation by a person. Maybe it, there will come a time when we don't care about that as much, but to the extent that that is a central premise underlying the Confrontation Clause, we can't get that from the machine itself, but we might be able to get it if we add some human vouching component. A final question for you. Where do you see that future work needs to be done in this space? And it might be something that you're thinking about doing or things that you'd like to see other people do. And related to that, how do we practically speaking get courts and the rules to grapple better with the machine evidence? Well, I think future work would involve actually doing the nuts and bolts work of creating a regime of evidence law for machine assertions. It's taken us decades, if not centuries, to decide whether implied assertions of humans should be considered hearsay or not under the rules. We're going to have all those same conversations when it comes to machines, and we just haven't yet. So I'm envisioning decades of scholarship related to precisely how we should regulate machine assertions, what corroboration requirements we should have, what jury instructions we should have, what pretrial disclosure requirements we should have with respect to experts, each of which could be its own genre of scholarship. And also the constitutional component, confrontation clause and compulsory process deserves book-length, article-length treatments. As far as how to get courts interested in this, I think they definitely are already looking for guidance. There is already the Supreme Court, Justice Sotomayor in Bull Cumming versus New Mexico in particular, has said, look, at, we know at some point we're going to have to deal with this issue of whether raw data from a machine implicates the Confrontation Clause, but we're not there yet. You have courts, state and federal courts every day, hearing litigants argue that machine assertions are hearsay, which I don't think they are typically. And so courts are definitely looking for guidance. They will want something concrete. This article doesn't hand to them on a silver platter precisely what they should do in a particular case. But I think we could pretty quickly develop some front-end safeguards for machines along the lines that we have in the DUI context, but for DUI and fingerprints and ballistics and all of these other areas that courts could then instruct jurors on and give them some guidance. So maybe the rules will have to come first, but I think courts will be excited for those rules <laughs> to come down the pike. Andrea, thanks so much for coming on the show and for these insights on machine testimony. Thanks for having me, Ed. As I alluded to in the interview, one of the most compelling aspects of Andrea's paper for me is the parallel she identifies between hearsay and machine evidence. We have the hearsay rule because a hearsay witness prevents us from probing the testimonial capacities of the underlying declarant. When we have a human witness testify about the results of a machine, we often have precisely the same structural problem. That human witness does not provide an adequate opportunity for the court to probe the capacities of the underlying machine. In fact, the parallel is so strong that in her paper, Andrea is able to construct a machine evidence analog to the very famous tribe hearsay triangle. But despite the strong structural similarities, the evidentiary rules don't seem to object to machine evidence, or at minimum, they do not police machine evidence nearly as rigorously as hearsay. Perhaps it should. The other strength to Andrea's article is its emphasis on moving away from a single-minded focus on in-court testing and a regime of evidentiary exclusions 
toward broader alternatives, such as discovery. Mandating the production of evidence that empowers an opposing party is just as powerful as a judge excluding evidence, if not more so. This is a theme we have seen in many episodes this year, and perhaps represents a growing shift in evidence scholarship away from admissibility rules and toward the proof process generally. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer for this episode was Alex Nunn, and the production editor was Carson Smith. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.